Hi there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding, and thanks for listening. April 5th, 1538. Today, I leave my apprenticeship with Geneva Tomasia. Florence has never looked so welcoming, her old stomping grounds. The smell of basil hangs in the air, and the faint hint of something else, more earthy. I can't quite put my finger on it yet. Iron? No. <laughs> it's familiar, though. Definitely an earth element. I'll get better at identifying them in time. She's gotten me my first posting with a patron here. A merchant. It's always the merchants, Ginevra tells me. They bring in all sorts of new treasures, and minerals, spices. Is this stone useful, they ask. Do you think this creature's fur can be transmuted into a living version? Can you turn this eastern sage into a blueberry bush? <laughs> no. Obviously, I can't turn sage into blueberries, but I can roast a damn good pig with it. Sage into blueberries is a waste of everyone's time. Then again, to my knowledge, no one has performed that transmutation yet. So if I was able to, then anyone else in the future could too. Thanks to me. I arrived at Master Alessio Barbaggio's doorstep just before noon. When he greeted me, he walked me through a room that was too big for most people to call an entryway, but that's what it was. Geneva was right to ask for such a high price, though I wasn't exactly sure what he wanted just yet. On the fastest tour I've taken in my life, he took me to a plate of food one of his servants had set out for me, pointing it out to me as if I'd had no interest. I was starving. I had the interest. But he was eager to show off the workshop he set up for me. It was behind the house, beset by his wife's herb garden. It was set up well, at first. Then he took me inside. Geneva gave him a list of all the tools I'd need for the basics. But that was it. This was far too much for a meager kid. I wasn't sure what else you'd need, he told me. So I had some odds and ends brought from the store. It's probably not useful to you, but I didn't want you to start your work with nothing. Ah, uh, yes, I said. And what is this work? Alessio held out his hand. In it was a glass jar filled with a greenish powder. I'd like you to make me emeralds, he said. I smiled back. Oh, is that all? Hey there, I'm Dr. Karen Bellinger, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome back to Working Over Time, and as always, thanks for joining our exploration of society through the lens of work, over time and across cultures. In today's episode, we're talking with Dr. Boria Sachs about all things alchemy, what it was, what it wasn't, what it meant to those who practiced it, and how an alchemist in the not-so-distant past could make a heck of a career out of it. Want to play along? Perfect. You'll need some supplies. Go grab one part fiery dragon, a few doves of Diana, 
and seven eagles of mercury. Got them? Great. Now, mix them together. What do you get? According to a recently discovered manuscript by none other than famed physicist Isaac Newton, you've got the basis for the legendary Philosopher's Stone. And these head-scratching ingredients, probably not available at your local Costco, comprise the recipe for sophic mercury, a substance many alchemists viewed as key to transmuting the Philosopher's Stone. And if you don't know what the Philosopher's Stone is, then you need to swat up on your Harry Potter stat. Sir Isaac Newton, widely regarded as the father of modern scientific principles, wrote more than a million words about alchemy in hopes of using this ancient knowledge to better explain the nature of matter and possibly to make a quick buck or two, something that's motivated many an innovator through the ages. Looking at you, Thomas Edison... Zephram Cochran. Now, you may well not have known that Isaac Newton dabbled in alchemy, and that's because scholars have largely discounted it as a mystical pseudoscience full of fanciful processes that can't be proven using the scientific method. But here's what's even more interesting about alchemy. It's so much bigger than you'd expect. It's not just turning lead into gold. It's the full-on universe of change, of transformation. And alchemy is all around us, even today. Let's find out how and why, shall we? Today, we're looking at alchemy in Renaissance and early modern Europe. And our guide is Dr. Boria Sachs. Boria teaches literature at Mercy College in Sing Sing Prison. He's written award-winning books across genres spanning scholarship, poetry, reference, and memoir, translated into many foreign languages. He became interested in alchemy through his own study of European fairy tales, with their stylistic similarities to alchemical writings. He also works with glass as a hobby, where the traces of metals in bits of glass interact in imperfectly predictable patterns, calling to mind those which alchemists observed. Boria received his doctorate in intellectual history and German from State University of New York in Buffalo. He founded the nonprofit organization Nature in Legend and Story, dedicated to promoting understanding of traditional bonds between human beings and the natural world. Boria, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Before we dive in, I'm just going to ask you a favor. If you could just, in a couple of sentences, tell us, what is alchemy anyway? I, I mean, I think it's a word everybody's heard at one time or another, but might not actually know much about. Uh, the way I often think about it, it, it is that it is the study of change. Uh, and it suggested the possibility of many further transformations. I mean, if you could take a lump of uh, earth and, um, you know, make it into a sword, well, you know, maybe you could um, transform a, um, uh, a human being into a dragon. Maybe you could transform almost anything. And I love that. That actually makes more sense than any other definition of alchemy I've heard. Thank you, Boria. <laughs> That's You're great. You're very welcome. And so 
please tell us what time period will we focus on in our discussion today and where in the world? Because presumably humans everywhere kind of wondered about this possibility for transformation. Uh, from the late Renaissance through the early modern period in Europe, that is uh, from roughly about 1450 to about 1700, um, that is when, um, well, that was a sort of a great age for, for European alchemy. Can you tell us what's going on in the world at large at this time that might have encouraged alchemy to emerge in the form that it did? Well, alchemy um, uh, came to the fore uh, in a period of great intellectual and religious and political turbulence. It was a time of religious wars, between Catholics and Protestants. It was a time of awakening uh, scientific discoveries. It was a time when people were very persistent about um, questioning uh, authorities and questioning all of the verities that had been accepted as something like common sense for uh for centuries now the reason why alchemy came to the fore in that period in my opinion is that it was a discipline focused on change and there was so much change in so many dimensions at that time Oh, I love how you put that, because so many of the changes that you just mentioned could have been seen as very threatening to many, many strata of society, no? They definitely were. Um, in a way, the alchemists were uh, backward-looking, almost anachronistic. In other ways, they were extremely forward-looking. Um, their discipline was focused on transformations. And for many people, transformations were threatening because they uh, undermined accepted authorities. This was a time when um, traditionally, uh, personal ambition had been frowned on. Uh, that is to say, um, uh, if your father was a shoemaker, you would be a shoemaker. If your father was an agricultural worker, that was your destiny. That was where God had placed you. And to question that or rebel against that or to aspire to something else was to question the wisdom of God. But um, the alchemists um, saw the society not as static, but as, and, and saw everything uh, not as static, not as fully formed, but um, 
at least potentially uh, in constant change. At the same time, I think the alchemists looked back towards the past in ways that were reassuring. People were all very afraid also, and with good reason, of nihilism, of the uh, destruction of any kind of belief and any kind of morality. And indeed, um, not without some basis, the Thirty Years' War in Germany, 1618 to 1648, which involved just about all European countries, was one of extraordinary brutality where uh, some of the armies simply broke down and ceased to listen to their commanders. And I find it really interesting the way you position the alchemist as kind of straddling the past and the future in some really interesting, exciting way. And I would love it if we could kind of dive right from there into considering how they actually did their work, what it involved. Well, uh, I think part of the appeal of alchemy was that it said that change wasn't something completely arbitrary, it had patterns, it could be controlled, and um, this, this appealed to people. Um, but uh, as far as how it was actually practiced, while the writings of the um, alchemists are almost impossible to understand, they're filled with all sorts of complex allegories, uh, all sorts of um, elaborate metaphors and all sorts of secret codes, the works of the alchemists are to this day so surrounded with myth and legend and um, wild interpretations that uh, as far as everyday life goes, uh, I don't think they are and probably will never be much of a guide. April 5th, 1538. Continued. Of course Alessio wanted emeralds. Who doesn't? But why specifically emeralds? I asked. He told me a ship came in from the north with new materials for the university. But one of the crewmen saw an opportunity to earn a few silver coins and offloaded a few texts to him. The writing was a mix of several different languages and symbols. Some I recognized and some I didn't. Most readable was an alchemical formula for emeralds. I don't know some of these symbols. They're foreign, I told him. He spread his arms, smiled wide, and said, That's what we're here to do together. This is of reach, I know. But last year, I heard from one of my suppliers, a man I trust, that a northern prince was making sapphires, and he showed me the knife to prove it. I wanted to tell him that I've seen false alchemy before, that unless you witness the transmutation yourself, it's just a rumor. And Geneva, Tomasia, 
trained me not to abide rumors. We followed the true knowledge, and though our successes be few, they are successes nonetheless. Ginevra always demonstrated her successes publicly. After months of work, she'd recreate the results twice, just to be sure, and then perform them in the square. You know, a lot of alchemy is research, I told Alessio. My eyes are good, and I am eager to learn. January 1st, 1539. We've translated two of the foreign symbols, with the help of a cousin's bookkeeper, no less. Alessio's cousin's housekeeper hails from the land just south of where the pages originated. One night, over wine, we were discussing our progress, or rather, lack thereof, with his family. Alessio, for all his qualities, was a curious, patient man with few expectations and loved the sound of his own voice. This was fun for him, a hobby of sorts. For me, the stakes were mounting. I should be better than this. I was better than this. But I had to remind myself, emeralds were no small task, even for those far more experienced than I. As we passed the text around the table, Astrid, the housekeeper, overheard our ramblings. She took a look and immediately recognized one symbol, and eventually, the other. The excitement was so thick, you could have coated it in sugar and sliced right through it. Alessio and I rushed back to the workshop. Astrid told us she'd send for a relative who might know even more if Alessio would agree to fund their travel. So he did. This man didn't need emeralds. I could hear the revised formula running through my head over and over and over. In Ginevra's voice. Everything she taught me. Her wisdom. Her blunders. Of which there were many. So here's the formula. Take ground silica crystals, red lead, which will turn to bright orange when powdered, and place in a glass bowl. Then take a little copper to add the green. After doing so, add some unknown symbol, and some salts, and heat it all together. The last symbol remained a mystery, and I wouldn't be able to properly work out proportions until we had them all. So we didn't expect an emerald, but we did expect something. And in that regard, it didn't disappoint. We witnessed a molten glow with a color that looked as if all flora could grow from it. The very color of life itself, brighter than the hue one might view on the sea's horizon at night. And then, nothing more happened. But that glow remained with Alessio and with I for a long time to come. What are the other sources that people use to uh, understand what alchemy was about in this time? Uh, fantastic as the writings were, we have a very sober, very realistic uh, portrayal of them in painters of the time. Um, especially um, the Dutch and, and Flemish painters. And uh, these are what tell us what alchemy was like in everyday life. Um, and 
Well, in Peter Bruegel's etching, The Alchemist from 1558, uh, a practitioner from the peasantry works intently in a cramped quarter, oblivious to the squalor around him. In Jan Steen's painting, The Village Alchemists from the 1660s, an elderly local practitioner sits at a table using an improvised burner with a heap of coals rather than a furnace while others stand around gossiping. Yeah, yeah, Boria, could you tell us, based on what you see in this artwork, which it's very fortunate, isn't that the, the, the Dutch and Flemish painters of this time specialized in this just remarkably realistic style. Uh, what kind of details can you glean as to what the daily routine of an alchemist might have been? You know, what did they wear? What tools did they use? What materials? One thing that comes out in just about all of these paintings, you know, some of them are maybe satiric, some are simply documentary, uh, some are a little bit romantic, but in just about all of them, the alchemist seems to be so caught up in his work that he is oblivious to any distractions. He may sometimes be poor, but he doesn't seem to mind that much. He's just so totally focused on his work that nothing else seems to matter. This is sometimes quite spacious, but until um, mid-17th century, the, um, they're entirely oriented towards work. They're very practical. In the central place in the paintings is the alchemical furnace and around it are glass tubes of various shapes and sizes, often fairly randomly arranged. Books are piled on the floor. All around are scattered clay jars and copper pots in, and iron tools. And, and how do we think that these alchemists were working? What were they actually trying to do? I think um, they clearly saw themselves not simply as metal workers who were assigned to produce a certain product. Um, all of this had a cosmic dimension. Um, you know, they were participating in cosmic processes that transcended the individual. And there was a great excitement of discovery that comes through. I'm so fascinated by the idea that one could be participating on such an elevated level, right? With cosmic processes transcending the individual using these kind of quotidian objects like tubes and and pots and jars and a furnace I, I i just can you can you tell us what they actually did with all of their tools and their materials 
I think they were a lot like artists today. You know, not in every respect, but like artists, they um, were somewhat removed from their society. They didn't belong to a particular class. They lived near the fringes of the social hierarchies. Uh, some of the art alchemists, like some artists, were well-placed. Some of them had patrons. Most had to live by their wits, whether currying favor of the mighty or doing temporary jobs. Um, and finally, uh, artists and today, just like old-time alchemists, face constant temptation and pressure to as we would put it today, sell out. That is to place their skills in the service of commerce. But what kind of commerce would these skills have attracted? And it sounds as if they were not necessarily self-funding. So who would contract these services? Um, on some level, just about everybody would. You know, they didn't just work in metals. They were responsible for all sorts of transformations, and that meant they could um, help with, or at least help with things like making paint, um, uh, preserving foods, and so on. Um, you know, they they worked with glass, they worked with all sorts of different materials. But the very well-placed patrons would usually be aristocrats who were at once frightened by and attracted to their promise of turning base metals into gold. Oh yeah, who doesn't want that? It's that and 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 the the fountain of of youth and everlasting life, right? Wasn't that one of the other ways in which alchemists were uh, looked to? Well, as far as the the, the elixir of life, uh, that is more a subject of Chinese alchemy. Um, oh, okay, it wasn't really important at this time. However, the philosopher's stone which was the ultimate goal of alchemists, uh, did have all sorts of mystical properties, including that of bestowing long life and perhaps even resurrecting people. But the Europeans, they were mostly interested in the early modern period with cold, hard cash, huh? <laughs> October 23rd, 1540. My service with Alessio Barbaggio has come to an end. We never managed to translate the final symbol. It wasn't known to Astrid's cousin, nor anyone else with whom he spoke. Alessio hasn't given up on the emeralds, but he did need to focus on other things, like his new grandchildren. For my first patron, Alessio was the best I could have hoped for. Kind, patient, honest, and of course, he paid well. My new patron seems... less so. For two weeks I've been kept, I guess is how I'd describe it, 
in Countess Maria von Tassel's estate on the outskirts of Vienna. She survived the Ottoman siege on the city a decade ago. Her husband did not, but she's maintained the family's good standing amongst their peers. I'm only allowed in the north wing of the estate, banned from the rest of the house. Yesterday, I saw her stout little frame standing at the end of the hall after I finished my breakfast. She's not a cruel woman, but she could run a contingent in the Viennese guard. I was brought here for one reason, and one reason only. To make gold. No one wants the simple things anymore. So I set to my task, over and over again. Gold. Step one. Silkworms. And not just any silkworms. Mother silkworms. She did not want to pay for them. Or rather, I suspect she couldn't afford as many as I'd need in trial and error, so... I had to barter with two monks. I traded them for three formulas and techniques that we had had success with in the past. They were simple, though. And even though they could be acquired by any alchemist with basic knowledge, I was not going to put this deal at risk, as the Countess was not to take disappointment well. And I wanted to be out of that tomb of a property she called a house as soon as possible. There are too many spirits there. And I don't mean just those of the deceased. The Countess is a haunted woman. Haunted by her past, by her debts, by her mistakes. I don't know what they are, but the stable master has been with her since boyhood, and he tells me that one day, someone is coming to collect. Feed silkworms mulberry Which brings us back to the gold. Until they're fat enough to fight each other to the death. When one has subdued the other, feed the victor gold leaf. Then heat the vessel, killing the victor. Use the resulting ash to make gold. I did this for several weeks to no avail. Ginevra says she only knows this formula from the Eastern Isles, and she'd never attempt it. She doesn't trust any alchemical formulas from east of the Volga, where this one hails from. She held the knowledge, but didn't practice. Perhaps as a warning. I mean, how, how did someone enter what sounds like this really liminal career, as you describe it? They're sort of on the fringes of various social groups. They're straddling the you know, material commercial world with you know, deeply, um, epically cosmic spiritual concerns. You know, who became an alchemist in this time period and, and why? Well, uh... In um, Game of Thrones, there's a guild of alchemists, but that isn't uh, an, ac- an accurate portrayal of what it was. No, you're, trades... you're not everything in Game of Thrones is accurate. You are such a spoiler, Boria. <laughs> well, uh, it's... You know, it's it's something that it, it would be reasonable to expect. Because <laughs> it's uh, on I mean, TV. I'm sorry. <laughs> quite okay. Uh, uh, other trades were organized into guilds, and you know, you um, uh, you had a certain rank, and um, you had to uh, have certain very definite requirements in order to enter them. Uh, alchemy was different. It wasn't um, nearly so organized. 
it was mostly just a matter of reputation. And I think it was um, not so much passed on to from father to son or mother to daughter like other professions of the time, but it was um, something that people felt a calling to. Uh, people who could be merchants, uh, aristocrats, or even peasants, uh, they felt drawn to this. Uh, they were fascinated by all of the uh, cosmic symbolism and they would just um, get together a little bit of equipment and um, try it out. Again, sort of like artists today. I mean, we do have art schools, but nobody, uh, you know, certifies you as an authentic artist. Uh, right, absolutely you know, not. You just, <laughs> that's that's uh, what you you do with your reputation, as you as you put it. What what a what a great uh, comparison. And were there any areas of specialty within alchemy that we know of, or were people generally, well, generalists? Um, there were certainly specialties. Now, the goal of most alchemists was to. Um, produce the philosopher's stone, you know, the, the ultimate goal. Some alchemists, uh, for example, Paracelsus would specialize instead in medicines. Do you think that this was a full-time proposition? Could someone make a living as an alchemist at this time? Some could. Um, many could not and in that it's sort of like uh artists you know um uh, artists uh are uh famous for their devotion to their activity and they uh want to pursue it no matter what uh some of them make a living some of them get rich the most the majority just uh, scrape by however they can. How were alchemists actually paid, or, or I suppose were they paid in terms of cash, or how, you know how were they supported in their work? Those who would be really successful in worldly terms would have wealthy patrons. Um, but again, um, if you had a wealthy patron, that would mean that you could be deposed in the uh, notorious intrigues at the court. And so like everybody else there, the alchemists would have to devote a lot of their time to uh, politics and to um, uh, uh, cultivating the the right sorts of relationships. Um, well, Augustus the Strong, who was Elector of Saxony and King of Poland, used to kidnap alchemists for his various projects. Kidnap? 
Yes. Why? They didn't want to work for him or he didn't want to pay for it? Tell me about that. I, he, he was willing to pay, but um, he probably wanted to make sure that whatever they discovered, uh, you know, uh, that they wouldn't go seek out another patron, uh, that they wouldn't uh, desert him, that whatever knowledge they brought in would remain in his hands. Oh, so kind of like silk handcuffs. Sort of like that. He was obsessed, uh, in this case, not so much with metals, but for finding the formula for Chinese porcelain. Oh, and that would be worth a fortune, right? I mean, at this time in the world. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. I mean, uh, uh, people were importing these beautiful ch Chinese and Japanese vases, but uh, nobody really knew how they were made. And uh, one of his alchemists, Johann Birchger, finally figured it out. And he was then granted his freedom and put in charge of the first porcelain factory in Europe. And how do you think alchemists were viewed by those outside of their, their sort of community of fellow thinkers and mystics, if we can use those words? I mean, were they respected? Were they feared? What did, what did the average person on the, on the street think of people dabbling in such such things? Like artists, uh, considered a little questionable and even disreputable. Um, social mobility itself was often frowned upon, and these were avatars of change in many respects. People who uh, studied change, people who wanted to harness change, and people who uh, aspired to social mobility. At first, they were often suspected of witchcraft or heresy or... Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, they're, they're dabbling with the devil's works here, trying to make something into something it's not. <laughs> Chemistry itself wanted to become... Uh, a respectable scientific act activity in the late 18th centuries. Um, chemists tried very intensely to distinguish their uh, respectable activity from alchemy, which was uh, either mystical or fraudulent or a combination of the two. Um, they, I guess you could say, were regarded sort of the way almost all people that are on the fringes of the social hierarchy are regarded as at once fascinating and yet suspect. March 2nd, 1541. The Countess's debts have come due. I woke to the sounds of fighting, muffled voices in the dark. I stayed in my room. Clutching my small blade, I stood behind the door. No one came for me.
which means either they didn't know or didn't care that I was there. When first light broke, I searched the house, then the greater estate. There was no sign of the Countess. I found the stable master packing his few belongings. She's not coming back, he told me. Best not be here when her children show up to feast. I didn't know the Countess had children. She didn't speak of them. In fact, she spoke of very few. Only her late husband, the cook, and the woman down the road that would tell her a joke every so often. I didn't ask for more details, and she paid in advance. I took what food I could from the kitchen and decided to head back to Geneva. It was too long since I'd seen her. On the way out, I noticed something I thought odd at first. The door to her private study was open. Inside, everything of value was still present. The silver was untouched. But all of her books had vanished. Did she take them with her? Or rather, were they taken with her? Only now do I know she attempted alchemy herself, without claiming a calling to it. And in that, she had made promises to those one should never confide in. For when they come, they come with iron. I like iron. It's a good ingredient, but I don't want to find myself facing it. Within the hour, I was gone. When I returned to Ginevra's workshop, she greeted me warmly. I told her about my posts, my failures, my plans. She laughed, which was not something she did often. So when you earned that smile, you remembered it. Eventually, you'll get it right. At least half the time. I'd love to get it right even one time. Where did alchemists get the information and the knowledge that they needed to conduct their experiments? Partly from uh, word of mouth, uh, partly by apprenticing themselves to other alchemists, and also from books. Deserving knowledge more than as trying to constantly increase it. And so they would not just look for the latest books as um, researchers might do today, but they would very often look for old books in used bookstores that might contain some sort of secret which had been forgotten. Some of the famous alchemists, such as Nicholas Flamel, who- uh, Oh, he's a cameo the... in Harry Potter, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, let's say, uh, is he, was he a real, a real alchemist? Uh, nobody knows for sure. Um, he was a real person. His life is moderately well-documented but there are a lot of legends about him um, and nobody really can uh, distinguish the legend from fact uh, anymore, as is the case with a lot of these figures. But supposedly he, um, he made a sort of a pilgrimage to uh, find somebody who could interpret an old book for him. And he went to Spain and he went to the Jewish community 
until he finally found a, a Jewish alchemist who could um, help him understand what he found in an old book. Yeah, well, I, and, and you know, let's face it, um, the line between myth and history is, is often pretty blurry across cultures. That makes me wonder if there was any sort of accountability that that these individuals faced. I mean, it's kind of a, a big responsibility in a way coming up with, um, well, with some of these cosmic truths that they were searching for, right? You know, obviously there wasn't a governing body. They weren't licensed or anything like that. But, you know, who held them accountable for the work that they did? Well, their patrons certainly held them accountable. And if um, the patrons felt that they were not coming through, then they could lose their livelihood. Uh, on a more local level, they could be held accountable by ordinary citizens. And um, their reputation was usually sort of iffy. And what was the biggest mistake an alchemist could make in the, in the Renaissance or the early modern period in Europe? As for just about anybody else, um, their lives were dependent on politics, on uh, currying the favor of the high and mighty. And if they were associated with the wrong faction or the losing faction, or if they fell from favor, it could be um, disastrous for them. You've said that alchemy was essentially a study of everything. We, we've talked about how it's really oriented to change, to metamorphosis and evolution and comprehensive patterns. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how that model actually led us to modern science, which is much more splintered into individual disciplines? Well, yes, uh, absolutely. Um, the foundation of alchemy was never really disproven. Alchemy was founded on uh, ideas, very old ideas of correspondences, the idea that the human being was a microcosmos, uh, a microcosm of the world that all bodily and spiritual and emotional processes had equivalence in the larger universe. Um, what, uh, it was not the kind of theory that could be empirically tested. It was tied to uh, a different worldview. It has not declined so much because of new discoveries, but simply uh, because of increasing specialization. Historians of science in the late 20th century and the 21st have been constantly um, looking back and reconsidering that process. 
and they have uh, recognized that the transition from uh, alchemy to chemistry and uh, other disciplines was um, neither so abrupt nor so clear nor so complete as earlier historians had believed. Uh, Newton, as we now know, devoted most of his time to alchemy. And this wasn't merely some um, uh, obscure hobby, but it influenced a lot of his discoveries. For example, um, the idea of gravitation, which was rejected by some of his contemporaries as uh, unempirical, because how could um, one body influence another if they were not in some way connected? So this is really a hot topic in uh, academia today. Yeah, and I, I think just as someone you know who comes from a background in the academy myself, I, I'm just thinking about this movement that we see towards less siloization between disciplines and, and not just between, say, humanities disciplines or social sciences or sciences, but across them. And I'm, I'm thinking about the recent popularity of big unifying theories, not just in science, for example, trying to understand the origins of, of the universe, but, you know, big history is is a very um, current concept in the humanities. And, and I wonder if you would draw a line between those recent academic developments and alchemy and its legacy. Absolutely. There have always been people who continue to practice the alchemical traditions, even if uh, they were not always in fashion. People like Fulcanelli and uh, Dennis William Hauck, and a lot of them say that quantum mechanics is a sort of vindication of alchemy. Yeah. Uh, early modern science, you know, the science uh, that was pioneered by people like Francis Bacon and Rene Descartes was largely based on a sharp division between the objective world and the subjective world. In your own work, Borea, I, I, I know you, you've done a great deal of work with symbols, and I'd love to know um, how that relates to alchemy. Uh, for me, it's been especially with fairy tales. I became interested in alchemy when I noticed a great stylistic resemblance between um, modern uh, European fairy tales, such as those of the Brothers Grimm, and alchemical narratives. Uh, for one thing, both of them tend to center on transformations, uh, both personal and material, both conceive of life as a sort of quest, both are 
essentially optimistic. The fairy tales and that they end very often with the hero living happily ever after. The alchemists in that they quest ends in a sort of apotheosis, the creation of the philosopher's stone. Both tend stylistically to center on extremes, good and evil, light and dark, young and old, which are ultimately reconciled in um, a great work. And both were developed in the form we know them today in the early modern period against a background of of wars and tense persecutions and turmoil. I think that there's nothing more powerful in our shared human experience across cultures um, than story. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that uh, the alchemists did very successfully is that they turned just about everything into stories. Um, they turned what we would think of as bare facts into stories that uh, perhaps enabled them to deal with all of this uh, new information that was flooding in more or less as it is today with the discovery of new continents and the questioning of old verities without being paralyzed or overwhelmed. Amen. That's what the world needs right now, Boria. We need alchemists. That's what we need. <laughs> and and we need good stories. We do. All right. Now, now I've got to ask you, I ask everybody this, but would you have made a good alchemist in the Renaissance or early modern Europe? I don't really know. I think... Um, I've always been a little bit abstracted, uh, maybe a little over otherworldly in ways. And so perhaps maybe I could, but I've never been too skillful at uh, negotiating office politics. Yeah. And uh, a successful drag. alchemist had to do that <laughs> as well. So, so maybe not. Boria, this has been so fascinating. I have learned a ton about alchemy and, and actually about really uh, uh, trains of thought and developments in both academic experience and popular culture that really suggest that the alchemists were onto something and it really didn't ever disappear with the emergence of modern science. It's, it most definitely did not disappear. You know, it uh, it's, uh, went into eclipse a couple of times and it's been revived a couple of times, but it's never disappeared. And uh, perhaps that uh, persistence is an indication that uh, on some level it's, it has qualities that we need. Absolutely. 
thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about this incredibly fascinating topic today, Boria. Well, I'm just so pleased that uh, you've uh, enjoyed it and found it interesting. And thank you so much for having me. It's easy to look at what alchemists did and dismiss it as hocus-pocus from a bygone era. But it's equally possible to view alchemy as a holistic and timeless theory of universal change, such as Borea describes. And if you look at it just right, it even passes as an ancestral form of chemistry. Alchemists understood that things could be broken down into their constituent parts and recombined. And by things, I don't mean just elements or compounds, but processes, systems, and whole branches of study. Alchemy emerged at a time when people across different cultures faced change on multiple fronts. Just think about a time you changed something in your own life. It's not such a leap from changing circumstances to changing fortunes, to looking to change the world around you in ways you never thought about before. Alchemy was big business in its day, and its underlying principles are strikingly relevant in our modern world, where, let's be honest, the only constant is constant change. Hey there, you can follow Borea Sachs' work on Amazon. Just search his name, B-O-R-I-A-S-A-X, and check out his awesome books. As always, we're on Twitter at WorkingOTSeries, with plenty of exciting show updates, additional content, and a chance to win your very own time machine. Uh, okay, well, I may have gotten a little carried away with that last one. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help get the word out. Plus, you can share the show with all the history lovers in your life. Until next week, thanks for listening. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Law Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on social media for additional content and show updates at Working OT Series on Twitter and Working Overtime Series on Instagram. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening.